you start uh, on episode one, that's the only way to really experience it and go all the way through. So that means you've listened to none of them because you're a latecomer. <laughs> I, I've been saving myself yeah. for when I can just binge on it. Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, anyway, so we have a we have a we have exactly what you wanted. Someone on our couch, on my couch, not our couch. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a big step for us. This is the first time we've had a guest, and we're very honored to have John Hudson, yeah, Washington Post national security reporter. Is that what you are, national security reporter? National security reporter, and so delighted to be on this comfortable couch. I did thought think that this was a joint purchased couch, but <laughs> it is. It's nice to know that you retain full ownership. Full ownership. Shadi hasn't moved in yet. He just comes <laughs> here every so often just to record this thing. Yeah, I mean, when you guys are there uh, and the commitments there, uh, he can move in. But he can move in until then. It's know, mine. Yeah. No pressure <laughs> until he moves in. It's, it's still. It's still. It's still all. All. In, all, all my ownership. So, so national security, John. How's how's uh, uh, how's all this impeachment stuff happening? I mean, it's 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 sort of one and the same story, right? Like, it's it's your beat in a lot of ways because it's it's tied up with it. Yeah, I mean, it's been a fascinating process because uh, I cover the State Department on a day to day basis with a, a focus on the diplomacy and actions of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and. The impeachment process uh, has been hovering right on top of, of the State Department. This is essentially um, a controversy that is about how the president has conducted uh, and and shifted American foreign, foreign policy uh, to uh, to do things that uh, he would like it to do, and how diplomats from the State Department. Uh, reacted to that. And from a sort of scholarly standpoint, it's been absolutely fascinating because I spend a lot of my time just going through uh, pages and pages of sworn deposition as uh, so many uh, of our diplomats have been called in to testify under oath uh, about what exactly happened. And, you know, for a researcher, there aren't that many moments when you have the benefit of Diplomats telling you exactly how the sort of complicated national security process happens uh, under sworn testimony. So if, if they're not telling the truth, you know, there's the ominous threat of perjury. Uh, and so in the world that I work in, diplomacy, which is completely um, – it's, it's just operating standard to have, be spinning and – uh, uh, really confusing, uh, things and not really saying exactly what you mean. It's really great to have people say exactly what they mean for fear of, you know, going to jail. Has it, have you like corrected any of your assumptions? I mean, surely you've spoken to a lot of these people through your years reporting and doing this beat in different, different, uh, different publications. Has, have you gotten insight into some of these people that, you know, that they were, uh, either, uh, I don't know, maybe their, their mode of lying to you or something like that? Do you have a better insight into their personality now that they're forced under, under, you know, threat of perjury to, to, uh, um. But Demir, isn't there also a difference between lying and not telling the truth? <laughs> I mean. And that might apply to a lot of people in the Trump administration. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, well, this is a question John. for Demir. Right? No, but I mean, everyone can lie to John. We do it all the time. But there's no problem with That's that, right. right? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, the the question is, but wow, what do you mean by that question, Shadi? What do you mean by like, what's the, the because lying suggests something more active and conscious, where you're actually trying to deceive the listener, 
we're not telling the truth, you're you're omitting things that may be um, not ideal to say. So I think there's just different levels. You know what I'm talking? About? Sure, yeah, different layers there. But where are you going with it? Like in the context of <laughs> of, of 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 this thing? Well, because I feel like John probably hears people. You know, some people are outright. How 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 often do people outright lie to you? Uh, it I, I would say it's 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 pretty rare. Rare. There's a lot of opportunities to, um, you know, offer things that are shades of truth or obscure things. Um, you know, out, outright lying is is less common. I would yeah. say. Hmm. And so again, like. Uh, you got, you're pouring through this stuff. You're getting a sense of 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 how you know speaking truth under under threat. Uh, what kind of insights are you getting from again maybe people you've talked to and had, and have been dealing with before? Yeah, well, I would say I mean there's a few case studies here, right? So um, you know there are some people, uh, for instance Fiona Hill, who was a, a, a quite massive sort of headline grabbing testimony that really captured the audience of, of the public and really the world and generated like a million different memes. Uh, so, you know, I had known Fiona, Fiona and talked to Fiona before she entered the administration and uh, always found her to be uh, a re- quite an incisive person and uh, a really fascinating scholar uh, who was also sort of um, I would say in some ways sort of a brave scholar in the ways that I remember just sort of weeks before she entered the administration or maybe months, um, uh, you know, I had talked to her about Brexit and uh, this was prior to the vote in, in, in Brexit. So definitely s- several months before she, she came in and uh, uh, she was, uh, uh, you know, deeply uh, concerned and was very, very expectant that this, that the public could vote in favor of, of Brexit, uh, which of course contrasted like immensely from the popular conventional wisdom of what was going to happen. Uh, and, and she was obviously right about that. So she felt the populist moment, you think? Like early yeah, on, absolutely. She, was, she was on top of it as a scholar, as an analyst early on, she got it. A hundred percent. And, uh, I think that sort of, uh, uh, sort of bravery to speak, uh, her mind and really have a clarity of thought and, and, and being able to articulate that, uh, without care for who it really pleases in her environment, uh, was exactly the Fiona who testified publicly, uh, and really, uh, really spoke with a lot of clarity when it came to, uh, what did she feel like was, uh, you know, uh, the role of Russian interference. What was the role that Ukraine played uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election, uh, and why did she join the Trump administration in the in the first place? And she had a real moment where um, she kind of clarified what had been for many people in in Washington and and. You know, probably maybe at the Brookings Institution, and Shadi can probably speak to this better. Of, <laughs> of, of like, whoa, like Fiona, you're joining the Trump administration after so many official people in in Washington's foreign policy had uh, you know revolted against Trump, and 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 she made this very sort of uh, uh, genuine statement that said, I heard the president say. 
Uh, we should have a, a better relationship with Russia. We should improve the relationship. And I believed in my heart of hearts that that was important. And that was one of the reasons uh, I, I joined. So uh, that was a kind of long answer. And, and there are different people who, I, who I've felt differently about in private and in public. Uh, but when it came to her, I, I, I think that her personality really shined through uh in in that in that public testimony uh as it has i think for some some people who knew her at a personal level mm. too so i was taking an uber a couple of weeks ago I, I get into the uber and the guy has i guess npr or something uh on on the radio and i hear this voice and i'm like that voice sounds so familiar and then after like a second or two i realize that it's fiona hill and she's testifying, or is that what it's? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> is that what it's called? Uh, yeah. So, because I actually was not following the impeachment proceedings at all, so I literally know nothing of what's happened the past couple of weeks. Come the on. only thing Come that on. I do know. Come on. No, no. But it was great. It was, You're unbiased by knowledge. Yeah. Uh, yeah right honestly, now. like I'm a blank slate, <laughs> yeah. so I'm. I want to learn today. I want to learn about impeachment and how the proceedings went. But the one thing that I do know is that Fiona was awesome. Like the, the, the bits that I heard on the radio and then like going into Brookings, like me and Mike, we're all proud of her because it's just amazing to see her, um, out in front and, um, just doing an amazing job. I mean, she's, she's brilliant. Her book, Mr. Putin is probably the, the best book to, if you really want to understand. Putin's worldview. Is that fair to say, Demir? I think so. It's yeah. a great book. But so, Shadi, uh, just to John's point, was she the only uh, Brookings person to go to the Trump administration? Were there others? Do you know off the top of your head? Uh, on the foreign policy side, yes, she's the she's the only one who went into the Trump administration. Was there broad consternation or just sort of understanding? Was she one of the original adults in the room so everyone was like, it's cool? Not consternation. I think maybe... Um, Maybe surprised at the very most, but I think we were all happy to learn that she got her position as the senior director for Russia and Eurasia. I guess that's a formal title. Um, because, you know, knowing Fiona and knowing what a, ser- you know, what a serious scholar she is and how much she knows her stuff, I think it was a relief to many of us to see someone like her getting a senior position. Right. And I, as you, as you can probably guess, Demir, I'm not someone who thinks that People shouldn't serve in the Trump administration. If you feel that you can have a positive influence from within, to me, that's a sign of serving your country. Um, and I would rather have more people like Fiona who are willing to do that than less. Right. So I never had a problem with that. I, it's interesting, right? Though, John, I mean, would you say she's the, the, uh, at least from the testimonies, but I would say even one could say even more broadly, she's one of the, maybe with the exception of Mattis, she's the, one of the few people that comes out look like smelling like roses out of this that goes in. It, it's, it's hard. It's, you go in and, and, you know, even, even if you don't cover yourself with glory, like Rex Tillerson, you still go out and the president just like takes a dump on your head on your way out. Right. It's just. Yeah. I mean, I, I've talked to some of the witnesses, uh, and, and, and talked to different ones about how they felt different people performed in the process. And I do think, uh, and this is maybe a smaller answer to the big question that you raised. I do think that 
some of the career foreign service officers had a much more difficult needle to thread. Like some of them, like George Kent, for instance, still has about nine years left in the foreign service, wants to continue serving under Republican and Democratic administrations. Uh, it, it still has that sort of bondage of, uh, you know, can't be viewed as someone who has any sort of, of partisan or political leanings uh, and really wants to f- fulfill the duty of being seen as uh, a, a, a really uh, a obedient foreign service officer interested in the, in the, in the country's uh, interests first and foremost. Um, that Fiona has the benefit of not coming from that very strict foreign service officer culture, uh, and, but also being someone who was supported for having uh, unique views and, and strong views uh, in, in, in many ways and making the case for those views. Um, and so I, th- I think that gave her an advantage of, uh, um, really maintaining her own sort of brand and academic scholarship, uh, a, a, a sort of imprimatur, uh, while those foreign service officers were a little bit straightjacketed by those things. Now, like your bigger question in terms of not being like publicly sort of diminished and, and, and looked down upon, um, you know, you know, there's the Tillerson example, the Mattis example. I do think that she had the benefit of being in some ways sort of a faceless bureaucrat as opposed to, you know, Tillerson in the role of nation's top diplomat. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, others who really had the glare of the spotlight shown on them the whole time. She operated behind the shadows. And, and as we learned, you know, she had to face some pretty difficult and in some ways totally humiliating professional moments that just happened to go, you know, behind closed doors right, in the right, process. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously, you know, didn't, com- didn't complain about that and, uh, you know, maintained a, a you know, a, a level of sort of professionality throughout that whole process. Hmm. But Demir, I want to go back to, to one thing because uh, I am serious about it. I know it sounds like I'm being like half trolly right here. Mm. And, you know, I want to uh, maybe that I think our, our listeners appreciate that. You're trolling. Yes. <laughs> so there's a little bit of that, but I'm, I'm also kind of serious in that because of my views on impeachment, which we discussed in episode five, I've been uncomfortable with the entire process from the very beginning. And it doesn't really connect with me. Yeah. And my suspicion is that there hasn't been, maybe there's literally one person in the country whose views or whose views have actually been substantively changed as a result of carefully listening to the proceedings. But I suspect, I suspect that it's very, you know, I don't think that that really happens. I'm, I'm very skeptical that this has changed the broad outlines of the conversation in any significant way. Because if you, if you got all the way up to this point, three years of the Trump administration, your views are already probably pretty solid and are unlikely to change. Right. And it's, I find it hard to believe that listening to what is, I think, a very specialized or a very specific conversation about Ukraine and about influence that I think is hard for the lay person to follow unless they really want to get into the weeds. I just have trouble imagining that that would tip the balance for any particular person, that all of a sudden they would see this and say, well, 
I I hate Trump now and I didn't before. Right. Well, I would just say that the in terms of tipping the balance and and changing sort of hearts and minds and people who previously didn't already have uh, strongly held views of impeachment. I mean, one data point that does exist is a lot of these center left Democrats who came in different parts of the country. Uh, you know, Alyssa Slotkin is one from Michigan where I'm from, uh, who was previously opposed to impeachment and thought that that was not a tool that should be used among the toolboxes of, of approaching, you know, opposing Trump. And, um, and, and this is part of the reason why Nancy Pelosi was also predisposed to not wanting to pursue impeachment. But the Ukraine issue did change the calculus for a number of center to center left Democrats. And, and that's how we got to the position that we're in today. And, and for them, that, that was a clearer narrative than what the Mueller probe, uh, uh presented them. Uh, and it, it was something that, uh, was alarming enough and, and easily to understand enough, uh, that, that they looked at it and said, yeah, the president probably shouldn't be using the tools of America's foreign policy to go after a domestic political rival. That's at least how they explain and interpret uh, uh, events. Yeah. So I, I'm suspicious about some of these center left politicians, and I, I as a man of the center left, oh, well, you're a hard left. But I, that's I, right. I don't consider myself center left, Demir. You're a hard left. No, I. <laughs> I, I mean, look, you're an I, iconoclast. No, but anyway, but but go on. Yeah. So, I mean, one possible explanation is that they saw how things had really shifted within the the Democratic Party, and that they couldn't afford to be among the few Democrats in Congress who were still saying, we're not cool with impeachment. I think it would have been very, from a political standpoint, from a pragmatic standpoint, I imagine it would have been quite hard for those particular Congress people to hold out and say, hey, we're still willing to give Trump the benefit of a doubt, considering um, where the party was going on this. So some of it might be, a kind of more uh, tactical calculation as opposed to a, a kind of change of heart in any kind of deep substantive way. And that's where I think there's a difference between political elites and then American voters writ large who aren't really, who don't have to worry about the political calculations. For them, it's a more instinctual position about how they feel about Trump. So I guess what I'm saying is that I have trouble imagining a significant number of ordinary American voters who are following this somewhat casually shifting their view um, because of li- because they're listening to the impeachment proceedings. You know, is, is that I mean, it makes sense. But, you know, I mean, I, I think you're, you're also kind of conflating uh both tactics and sort of the, the merits of the, of the thing. And, and, you know, I mean, I, there's a lot of, there's a lot sort of packed in there. So John, just to, you know, cause Shadi wants to be educated about what's going on because he's not paying attention at all. He says <laughs> on Wednesday and you can educate me as well. So the judiciary uh, committee is, is meeting and what's their role in all of this. They need to, I, I, I read something very quickly. They, they define basically the terms of impeachment part of that's what the hearings are about. And part of it is what, for example, crimes and uh, misdemeanors are, right? That's one of the, the things that's supposed to come out of this? Yeah, right. So just basically an hour and a half ago, 
the the Democrats leading the House Intelligence Committee, uh, at, led by Adam Schiff, uh, they put out a report and shared it among members. Yeah, uh, and, and basically, have you seen it? Laying out, I, I haven't seen this yet. I have. We should also say when we're recording because this will probably come out. I'm, I don't gonna, know I'm, I'm going. I'm going up. I'm staying up tonight to get this out. So this will this will come out tomorrow, uh, basically in the morning. Oh, wow. So okay. we'll, we'll have it. This will be very current. Very current for this very reason because I mean you know uh, you and I can sit around stroking our chins for an hour about eternal topics but this is this is more timely so we'll yeah. get it out there okay yeah, yeah. so uh, by the time you're listening <laughs> to this uh, if you listen to it the day that it has come out that's all of our listeners do because they're so loyal <laughs> the uh, the the members will have this report in their hands and uh, they are prepared to vote on this tomorrow um, and uh, and then it moves to the Judiciary Committee, which is uh, in charge for drafting the articles of impeachment. Right. And uh, this is obviously, uh, you know, a, a pretty crucial part of the impeachment process because um, they're going to face decisions like, um, you know, how broadly do we want to criticize uh, the sort of uh, uh, menu of Trump actions and behaviors that Democrats – who are leading this process uh, feel like should should be articles of impeachment. So you know we we're already pretty certain that obstruction of Congress is going to be one of them. Uh, you know, is bribery going to be in the articles of impeachment? Um, what other actions that uh, are under the umbrella of abuse of power will be included? Those are all decisions um, that are are going to be uh, hashed out. I mean, what we're going to see on Wednesday is. Um, a list, uh, uh, you know, a grouping of academics who are going to, you know, share their thoughts on the constitutionality uh, issues and dynamics involved in uh, the impeachment process. And uh, included in that group is a, a Republican selected mm -hmm. uh, professor, uh, Professor Turley from George Washington University, um, who has uh, offered some skepticism about. Uh, you know whether or not the the you know, the president's acts you know are are impeachable. You know, I mean, because here here's here's why why I ask about that, yeah. right? Is because um, I think we actually brought it up last time we talked about this, but if not, I'll bring it up again. I it's it's um, it's one of those things that this is ultimately on the one hand a political process. So it's right what you're saying to a certain extent is like you know what difference is this going to make? But I think it's also, and this is why. I, I have supported this from the beginning, even if it's a, if it's not going to, I think, I think it's, it's wrong to think of this as a process that, uh, if it doesn't remove Trump, it's a failure. I think it's worth doing for its own purposes because I, I, I do think that as someone who is skeptical of the whole Russiagate thing, this seems to me reasonably, you know, cut and dry as, as what, what transpired. And it's not right. Whether this is going to reach out to voters and sway minds, to a certain extent, I don't care. Um, I, I, I understand that as, you know, a democratic strategist needs to be thinking of how badly this screws them or doesn't screw them in the general. But again, from, from a standpoint of doing this, I don't think it matters. Um, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch this on Wednesday, how this transpires. Cause I, I've, you know, I, I wasn't paying this close attention for Clinton and I don't know how it worked back then. Uh, but to see, you know, these debates about the impeachability thing. But uh, the reason I bring up this, and I think I brought it up last time, like I said, we ran an essay by Gary Schmidt that makes the case that, you know, again, the founders had, uh, did this funny thing, which is, 
uh, impeachment is relatively easy in the House, and removal is relatively hard. You know, again, depends how you, what kind of constitutional scholar you are on these sorts of things, but one can at least uh, read into something that, well, since the, the bar is lower, it's not as discouraged. It's not this taboo that should be broken so much. And again, we, we talked about this. There is this thing. We don't want to make all politics a zero-sum thing about using uh, tools of impeachment to, to settle political scores. Um, I, 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 I think that, that what happened here was uh, nasty enough, shitty enough, uh, that, that it, it warranted this, even if, even if it, 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 he, he stays in there, which he will. To, to, to clarify my position, I do consider what Trump has done on Ukraine to be impeachable. But from my standpoint, that doesn't mean – so you can believe that something rises to the level of an impeachable offense, that it crosses a certain line, but still not feel comfortable with moving forward on impeachment from like a, a legal constitutional standpoint, right? I mean, so um, yes, is – well – Why? Why? Yeah, why? What's politics? Okay, but also, if I was a Democratic com- congressperson, I would support impeachment proceedings, the hearings, and then having a vote in the House. But I'm not a Democratic congressperson, so I'm approaching it as someone who was removed from some of those political co- uh, considerations. And I'm not comfortable philosophically um, with... So for me, I, I'm against removal, uh, I would not want Trump to be removed from office, even if what he's done is technically impeachable. You're against removal if they could convince the Senate to remove him. You're against removal. You're against the constitutionally provided provision that a president is removable. That, in fact, the legislature can, if convinced, override the will of the people, such as it was, and throw the fucker out. That's You're against this? On principle? I, never mind Trump, never mind the, the, the well, polarization that, today. But First but, of all, that is a, extremely unlikely to happen because Republicans would never vote for impeachment in the Senate. Therefore. So cons- with that in mind, I just am uncomfortable with this idea of kind of pursuing removal when we all know it's not going to happen. Funny, that's what I'm comfortable with. That's precisely what I'm comfortable with. Because I, I don't think, I think that there's two processes here. One is impeachment in the House. The other one is removal. Um, I mean, again, what are you uncomfortable with? And John, please jump in if you have thoughts on this, but like, what are you exactly uncomfortable with? You're uncomfortable with the, the potential, uh, strategic consequences of what this does to the Republic. I hear you. Um, uh, I personally look at this and, and weigh that, uh, along the lines of, you know, let's get this into the public record. Sure, this would have come out in books later. John might have written this book after all his his uh, his reporting, even if there wasn't this whole big public record that's coming out. He might have written the book about what happened in Ukraine. Um, I think this is valuable. Okay, let me let me try to let me try to articulate my specific objections, and then hear what you guys think. Um, number one, I think that the focus and what will likely be a sort of semi-obsessive focus on impeachment, at least for a certain period of time going forward, if this continues, is that it distracts from deeper substantive and 
substantive issues, policy issues that I think are much more important and are also much more the strong suit of Democratic candidates running for office and the Democratic Party writ large. If I have to choose between Bernie or Elizabeth Warren talking about massive inequality in the country versus the somewhat logistical and procedural aspects of impeachment, which are somewhat hard to follow for ordinary voters, I would much rather choose the former. And I worry that impeachment will push the party in a particular direction where, I don't know, I could be wrong about that. That's my worry. And I think it's possible that might happen where we get into a much a much more Trump-focused conversation where it's about, should Trump be impeached? What did Trump do in X, Y, and Z situations? As opposed to what I think Democratic candidates should be talking about and are pretty good at talking about uh, to, to one degree or another. That's one. Um, number two is I don't, I don't like the idea of setting the precedent of pursuing impeachment because if we do it now, Republicans will take it personally. Maybe they would have taken it personally anyway, but if we, if this advances to a higher level and it gets more serious as it seems like it will, then I think that it, I think that you have a greater chance that Republicans Going forward, if a democratic, if a, if there's a democratic president in 2020 or 2024 or whatever, they're going to do this, at least at the, um, let's say if they get, regain control of the house, that they will always do this. And they'll say that Democrats did this to us before in 2019. And someone's got to stop this endless, this endless, um, cycle of questioning the fundamental legitimacy of whoever's in office. And I think it, I think we just go more in that direction of a kind of endless back and forth about legitimacy. And granted, maybe Democrats, okay, so that, anyway, there's more that can be said about that, but I do worry about that. Um, and, um, and also, I think that as we talked about, I think in episode five, that as I understand the founders intent, there was an assumption that if impeachment, if impeachment went forward, it would not be a partisan thing. And of course, I think you, Demir, said in response to that at the time that the founders also didn't envision a factional process or a kind of party an excessively partisan context as we have now. But be, but I would say that because they didn't expect that or envision that, or perhaps they didn't want that, that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Impeachment should not be a purely partisan endeavor. And if it does become a purely partisan endeavor, then it's not a good idea from the get-go. And that's how I understand the founder's intent. Yeah, I mean... Well, I- we could reprise that argument, I guess, but in the sense that there were no parties when the founders were doing this, um, and how are you going to get bipartisan consensus if you don't try and convince? I mean, you know, I, I can I can give you, but also, am I uncomfortable? Let's say hypothetically that even if two thirds of the Senate were willing to to actually support impeachment and then actually remove 
the president, honestly, it's constitutional. It's totally legitimate for them to do that if there is a two-thirds supermajority. I'm not that I'm not comfortable with that though. Hmm. Hmm. So yes, at some basic level, it's legal. It's within the context of a democratic process. There's nothing inherently problematic about it. But me personally, for reasons that we could that would take take um a uh, that would take longer to discuss. Yeah, yeah. I'm just instinctually uncomfortable with that because it's overturning. The will of the voters and um, legal, safe, and rare is how you'd like to see it. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I am sort of interested by this Shaddy response because I, of course, first met Shaddy and knew him in the context of the the Arab Spring, uh, and also sort of later in the sort of when it, Egypt was going through uh, its incredible levels of political tumult. And, uh, obviously sort of knew him as a scholar that was speaking out, uh, in concern about, uh, the removal of Morsi. Um, and, and I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm getting a vibe of similar themes of uncomfortability with, uh, you know, overturning the will, you know, the popular will. Uh, uh, you know, of an election. Uh, of course, obviously, you know, I think what, Demir, what you're getting at is this is in the context of, of a constitutional process, uh, that has, has been spelled out, you know, in our constitution, uh, uh to be redundant. Yeah. Uh, and, and what happened in Egypt is, is obviously not. Um, uh, so do you think that, um, that's too sharp of a, of a distinction, Shady? So, considering that you know me well, John, (laughs) and you're a good friend, you can see how the, you know, you know how the Middle East has affected me. And, you know, obviously, it should go without saying that what happened in the Middle East is completely different than what's happening. Sorry? What happens in the Middle East stays in the Middle (laughs) East. Stays in the Middle East, right. But I can't help be I can't help but be influenced by what I've seen elsewhere and what I've experienced elsewhere, and that could just be part of a fundamental bias that I have that I I will not look at impeachment the same way as most Americans do because of my experiences outside of America. So I I'm willing to acknowledge that I might have a built-in bias here. And I can try to the extent that I can to try to separate and to try to draw careful distinctions. And so, but yes, I mean, I think there, there is something that makes me deeply uncomfortable about undoing electoral results through other means. Um, because ultimately, yeah, in some sense, if two thirds of the Senate decided to remove Donald Trump, it would be democratic in the sense that these are democratically elected senators who do themselves have democratic legitimacy, but it's a different mechanism. So you're removing Trump through a different mechanism than the one in which you brought him into power. And that does concern me that you're shifting, you're shifting the mechanism. And granted, again, that is legal. It's constitutional. It's legitimate in that sense. But once you start doing that, um, Shadi, let me ask you a different yeah. question. And, and I, I don't want to get caught up in, in yeah. too much in this stuff, but because I, I, I want to talk about, I think, uh, uh, an even more interesting question, which is, was there a crime? 
because I think that's that's in many ways for me where the rubber meets the road. And I think it's actually there's a lot to discuss there. But on this question, how do you feel about in general, uh, you know, uh, other elected officials that aren't the president that are at lower rungs getting removed by constitutional processes that don't involve going back to the voters? Do we need to revote every official that is a crook? Like, who, who do you have in mind? Well, I don't know. I mean, you can you can get all sorts of people removed. Uh, there's impeachment proceedings in all levels of government. One can impeach judges. Uh, I mean, and okay, so judges don't get voted. Well, in some places they do. It depends on on the district. Should everything always go back to some sort of plebiscite, or is there is there is it normal that a that a society has uh, um, mechanisms for removing uh, obviously criminal people uh, through a legalistic procedure uh, that doesn't go back to the plebiscite. Okay, look, my, okay, let me be a little bit more straight up. My worry is that in a hypothetical situation where there were enough, if there, there were a minority of Republicans in the Senate plus all Democrats and they reached a two-thirds supermajority and removed Donald Trump, I honestly worry that we would never recover, that it would, it would, lead to such profound scars in the body politic that it would fundamentally, in a sort of existential sense, imperil our democracy in a way that Trump staying in power and ideally being voted out in 2020 um, would not. Uh, you know, And even if Trump was theoretically reelected in 2020, I don't see that as being an existential threat. It would be really, really bad, and I... God help me, I hope it doesn't happen. But I don't think it would be existential. Where, if Trump was removed from office before his term ends, I worry that it would imperil the very foundations of de- of democracy in this country in a way that it it wouldn't be clear to me how we would necessarily recover. And that's a, I mean, and you can probably guess what my concerns would be in that regard, but that's really what it comes down to from my standpoint that there would be a significant number of Trump supporters in this country, millions of people, perhaps tens of millions of people, who would feel, in, and we would never be able to convince them otherwise subsequently, that their, that their democratic agency, if you will, had been fundamentally violated. And I just don't want to see what that looks like. But anyway, that, I, I don't want to go yeah. too much into no. like the scenarios. Yeah. How does that, John, how does that, does that resonate with you at all? Do you see where I'm coming from on that? I, John, let me ask you differently. <laughs> Here's a different question for you. I personally found, uh, I, I was on your page exactly during the whole Mueller thing because Russiagate was stupid beyond belief to me. Like, I mean, there were times when I would sort of take a look at all the evidence, say, oh, well, maybe there's something there. And, you know, I'd write an article trying to find the, the smoke and whatever. But you, you always sort of like step back and it was, it was a lot of heavy breathing, a lot of heavy breathing coming out of the Atlantic. Sorry, shoddy. And like, and, and, and a lot of these places, it was, it was people really were wishing for it to happen. Well, and just, everything just that you, I'll just, just say one thing. To, to be fair, there were also counter, Views in the Atlantic as well. Yes, yours. <laughs> like your <laughs> your scandalous essay. <laughs> yes, I understand. But but it's uh, uh, um, uh, there was a lot of that going on. Um, and in that sense, I guess I was actually very much on 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 
on your side at that point that that the consequences would be potentially terrible. Um, but that was informed by the fact that I really didn't think that there was a there there, and trying to manufacture a there was was the 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 uh, the sin. Whereas I feel like there's a there there, and I do want to sort of turn to whether there's a there there and really unpack that a little bit because I think it's more complicated than than it seems. Uh, I'm reasonably convinced there is a there there, um, and as a result, it's worth going through all of this just to highlight that. Consequences be damned. The politics will always be nasty. I think we need to not fall into the trap that, to a certain extent, something what you said really struck me that I, I, I think is, is the wrong way to think about politics. Is like we need to collectively step back from some sort of precipice. Politics is all about shoving and pushing each other. You as a, as a Chantal Mufian should, should, uh, should appreciate that. It's not, it never comes back to some sort of equilibrium. It's about, it's about testing boundaries. It's about, it's about shoving each other a lot. It's, it's, it's a rough game. It ain't beanbag, as they say. So, so, you know, um, no, again. Okay. But Demir, like from a Mufian perspective, <laughs> I mean, Chantal Mouf's work is really interested in the question of how we turn a kind of existential antagonism, one that actually threatens everything and could actually threaten a resort to violence. Her, she's interested in converting that into agonism, which basically means a kind of less existential form of antagonism that can be contained within a conflictual but still peaceful democratic process. So even from, from a Mufian perspective, there is still going to be a concern about going too far and having too much conflict and too much antagonism. Um, and you know, I don't want a bunch of like Trumpist, like, I don't want, even if they're small, I don't want like small Trumpist militias running around and defending the honor of the ex president after he's impeached. Do you have, do you have the objective knowledge to know that we're reaching that point? Or you're just, if, I'm just saying that if he was, if he was removed from office, I, I worry about, Look, I don't think there would be large-scale violence, but can't our be- state suppress a bunch of dudes with AKs okay, but, but running around? I don't want that. I don't want to test that proposition. But like, let's putting yeah. that aside, so we can get to the question of whether or not there was a crime. Yeah. And I'm very curious to hear what John thinks about that. Um, so I actually um, there was, if I recall, there was one pretty good article. I read it. But I haven't followed this debate closely enough to be able to say how how strong the argument is. Um, but Daniel McCarthy had a, had an op-ed in the New York Times. And Daniel McCarthy is um, probably one of the, the smartest, most interesting pro-Trump writers out there. And he's always interesting to read for that, for, for that reason. And I think he gave what, as far as I can tell, the best argument against against the notion that this was a crime. That said, I can't really replicate the argument because I'm not even sure if I believe it. But there is another view out there that 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 it that challenges the entire premise that this was in fact crossing some sort of criminal line. I don't know if you remember that piece, but but that's just to say that I'm sure there is an opinion which questions 
the criminal the criminal aspects of this. But like John, John what would you say about John? This? Was there a crime as a well, journalist? As an as an objective journalist, can you tell us was right, there a crime? I, I absolutely have have nothing to offer over whether it's a cr- crime or whether even the pursuit of impeachment is an advisable thing. That's that's not my role. <laughs> but to what, play how in would any you way. describe the contours of a debate? Like so, how how do you see the ant, the the side of the argument that says? That a crime wasn't committed. What are they saying versus what what is the pro impeachment side saying? Because it's 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 interesting to me that there are people who think that there is no legitimate argument whatsoever against impeaching because they're like it's so obvious there was a quid pro quo. There's so obvious there was some sort of crime. But then there's another side like Daniel McCarthy that it says. No, it's actually more complicated. Maybe can you lay that out? Because I'm not, I don't think either of us can lay out the contours of that debate. Yeah. I mean, the battle lines from my understanding from talking to Republicans and Democrats on the Hill who are going to be the ones really thrashing this all out. Um, you know, from the Democratic perspective, uh, they view what the intelligence uh, committee did in bringing together a number of officials, some political appointees, some career officials, and the amount of uh, corroborating accounts of a months-long pressure campaign um, uh, to uh, get the Ukrainians to announce investigations, um, they they view that as as, as very strong, and uh, they 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 believe that they have you know, a, a crime that they have uncovered through that. And the Republic- but just to be clear, what makes it a crime? Well, um, this is, the, this is the, the debate going on, and this is what the constitutional scholars are going to be uh, clarifying or completely disagreeing upon on or Wednesday. Muddying, yeah. <laughs> uh, exactly. And I, I think you two will be especially interested in seeing those the contours of those debates I'm obviously not a legal mind here, and, and I'll be neither a shoddy I am for that matter. We're just completely freelancing. But go, no, on. But you guys are legal curious, <laughs> um, and, and 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 really on the Republican side, um, what what I the conversations I've had with people on the Hill is um, especially, and I'm not talking about the Republican side that is more akin to the sort of Meadows Jim Jordan side, which is bringing up ideas on, you know, legitimizing sort of the conspiracy theory around CrowdStrike and Ukraine's meddling, alleged meddling in the 2016 election. I'm not talking about Republicans of that ilk. Uh, the sort of uh, professional elite Republican class, uh, the, the, these, the talking points that I've heard from them is, look, um, so, they tried to pressure Ukraine to launch these investigations. It didn't end up happening. Uh, no aid was actually, uh, 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 like they still got the $400 million, you know, in military assistance. Uh, they still, even though they didn't pursue the investigation in Ukraine that, that Trump wanted them to. Right. Yeah. So exactly. So in that sense, they didn't do what Trump wanted them to do, but they still got the aid. Right. Okay. Acquit. <laughs> no, I'm just messing around. Go ahead. Continue. <laughs> and, and, and so this view is, uh, yeah, it's, it's not, we're not saying that it's proper to pressure a foreign country to investigate a domestic political rival, rival, but it doesn't rise to the level of an impeachable offense. 
Uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty straightforward, um, argument on their part. Okay. Uh, And, and, and so, uh, the legality of everything is, is a totally new field. And then, you know, impeachment and, and what is going to be an article of impeachment. That's also super interesting because I, I, I go back to these sort of center left members of Congress whose willingness to go along with impeachment is really what moved this entire process forward. Those members are less interested in an impeachment process that that is an entire indictment of the Trump presidency and a sort of kitchen sink approach yeah. to the whole thing. They're more comfortable in what they feel like is a simpler narrative of uh, coercion of a smaller country uh, and a hot war with Russia um, in an effort to, uh, you know, come down on a domestic political rival and increase one's chances in the 2020 election. They view that as a more clear cut, uh, explainable uh, scenario that they can bring back to their constituents in a town hall environment uh, and say, um, you know, this is the reason why I'm pursuing and supportive of uh, an extraordinary constitutional method that has, you know, only happened four times in our history. A clarifying question. How much does intent matter when we're looking at what Trump did? Does he have to have been thinking consciously and clearly that he is doing this because he wants to undermine a political rival or does intent not really figure in here? And intent is going to be critical um, because, you know, as, as the white house has argued, uh, president Trump is a critic of, of foreign aid and uh, he, and, and, and as Republicans unveiled uh, just this week in their sort of pre buttle that came out is the, the president had very justified skepticism of Ukraine based on established years of endemic corruption in the country. Uh, and so he had every reason to be skeptical of committing continued U.S. aid uh, to the country. Um, you know, what, what others have said in, in some of these foreign service officers and people that testified is uh, it was not their understanding uh, necessarily that this was uh, just linked to sort of a- an anti-corruption drive. Uh, and so uh, establishing intent is going to be uh, pretty critical to these debates about moving forward on impeachment. So and how, and, and how would, just to finish this thought, I mean, how would Democrats respond to what you described as the Republican argument that it's bad, but it doesn't rise to the level of a serious crime in the sense that there wasn't actually a quid pro quo, that maybe even if there could have been a quid pro quo, the fact that aid wasn't actually withheld, how would Democrats respond to that? The Democratic response has been, you got caught, and that's the reason why this whole scheme, this whole quid pro quo scheme didn't go forward. And so, um, you know, attempted murder is still a crime. Uh, just because you got caught in the process or weren't successful in the process, uh, it's still a crime. And so they have been pretty united behind that rebuttal to Republicans shrugging this off as a scheme that never came into full fruition. But how likely is it that if Trump hadn't been caught that he would have actually withheld aid? 
Well, the orders certainly came down from the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, to withhold to, aid to withhold because aid. Ukraine was not doing what Trump wanted them to do. Well, as we, as we learned from some of these sworn depositions is there was a lot of confusion when this order came down and diplomats were saying, uh, it's ex- in their view, it's extremely important that Ukraine in this hot war, uh, continue to receive U.S. military aid. So, uh, what, why is this being held up? And a lot of these diplomats testified to having confusion about it, not knowing why it's not happening. Uh, and, and, and of course, there were other testimonies uh, uh, in which, you know, first and foremost would be the current U.S. ambassador of the European Union, Gordon Sondland, saying that he, in fact, you know, communicated this to the Ukrainians that um, uh, announcing these investigations uh, would be an important factor in the continuation of uh, security assistance. Look, look, <clears throat> How do I put this? Um, your colleague, Dan Dresner, I, I thought had a really good piece a couple of weeks ago. Um, and this is, I mean, maybe without, so, uh, this pulls us out of the weeds a little bit because I think like the, the question of was there a crime is, is more interesting than this, whether, um, you know, the aid was in the end delivered. So what's a quid pro quo if it ends up delivering and he didn't get what he wanted? And, that gets to know, the question of whether or not it, it rises to the level of, of, that doesn't bother me. Okay, Again, okay. we can come back to yeah, that yeah, because sure. because in the so, end, so it what doesn't do you think bother is me. The key issue then. Well, no, I, I let me give let me yeah. give. I think what what is possibly the uh, the crux of a smarter Republican rebuttal than the one that they've been giving. I think the Wall Street Journal actually gave a, a pretty good one a couple of weeks back. And I, you know, one thing that strikes me watching the the testimony is 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 uh, uh, how how terrible the Republicans are. How how and again. Obviously, uh, in the House, you have a lower caliber politician in general, but, but, but even, even on this like lower level, Schiff is, is, is outshining them. The Republicans seem to be flat footed and they're doing a bad job. I've seen, I've seen better defenses come from outside rather than in those, in those testimonies. But, and, and, and this actually is something that, John, I really would like to hear you on because as someone who's reported on diplomacy, the thing that jumps out at me in these testimonies is the extent to which, um, and again, this is a narrative I think that is uh, clear to all of us been watching this Trump administration and all of us, you know, you were talking about Fiona earlier. uh, We're cheering the good guys that are in there. Um, But it really comes to the fore in this testimony is the extent to which people are in there to uh, prevent the train from going off the rails. That's the nice way to put it. But the less nice way to put it is to thwart Trump, who is the (laughs) democratically elected president of the United States. If he has stupid ideas about foreign policy, well, we elected a stupid guy to run foreign policy. Doesn't matter. Therefore, to Shadi's point, the democratic will must be served on all of this. It's interesting the extent to which so many people get caught up in this idea of trying to outsmart the president on so many levels. They are uh, our, 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 uh, you know, our values and our struggle, our civilizational struggle against the, uh, the Russian hordes, uh, all, all hinge on supporting the democratic jewel that is Ukraine. And therefore, since this is so important, we can't let the president get involved in this. Um, you know, I, there was a, there was an article in, in War on the Rocks by Aaron Stein that made a similar case in, in, uh, 
in the the context of Syria, saying that you know the the catastrophe over the Kurdish question and and the sort of the craziness how that was the pullout there happened was uh, completely an own goal by the professional uh, class, the, the the State Department people, the the DOD people, because they didn't want to listen to the president, who actually is the goddamn president. So if the president wants something like we're out of Syria, screw all you guys. You have to do that on some level because the foreign policy actually emanates from that, 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 that cavernous, uh, you know, resonant echo filled head of his, right? Um, so therefore, what I'm getting at is this, uh, in Syria, it didn't lead to some impeachable crime. It led to a, a kind of catastrophe. Uh, because all of a sudden we found ourselves having to scramble to try and negotiate some sort of face-saving thing after Trump said, no, screw you guys. I asked for this a year ago. We're doing this now. And so then the entire foreign service is scrambling to do this. You see this in the Ukraine stuff to a certain extent as well. You see it all these guys. You see someone like Kurt Volker is, uh, who is a believer in the Ukraine cause, who is, uh, clearly someone who cares about Ukraine is trying to, justify to himself all sorts of stuff clearly something to me that seems like unsavory bad behavior on the president's things i can make this work i can square this circle i can make the president's requests work out we can satisfy both sides and then we can go back to the business of doing things just because the president has some bad ideas about this stuff um you know i i from where i'm standing i still think that a you know uh something worthy of impeachment, you know, whether it's a misdemeanor or whatever you want to call it. You know, I think something about public trust and using the government to, uh, to do this kind of stuff, uh, is not right and should be, uh, you know, brought out in front of, you know, through the, the, the mechanisms of, uh, uh, of impeachment. Um, but it's interesting to me that, how do I put this? I think there was a crime, but more interestingly, and I think uh, a more nuanced Republican defense of this would be, is that there's been a bigger, longer, anti-democratic push against this president on all levels of the foreign policy establishment to prevent his policies from happening that have led to all of these sorts of crazy situations from happening. Ultimately, the president never wanted to arm Ukraine in the first place. The entire apparatus managed to you know, get him to agree. And you might know more about this, John, how this actually happened, that they managed to get uh, this through uh, a president who from day one was skeptical of Ukraine, wanted better relations with Russia, wanted to make this work. Um, do you know what I mean? So that to me seems like a better defense of not going through this is that basically the president has been thwarted in his right to do foreign policy in a lot of ways. And then all of these things are sort of when he falls runs afoul of these things, it's, it's, it's part of a larger process that is more democratically legitimate. Does that make sense, John? Well, I, I think that w- what you're tapping into is something uh, – there is a very real dynamic that President Trump's instincts on foreign policy – uh, a sort of, uh, kind of mercantilist view, like 19th century view of foreign policy, uh, are not widely shared by many of his most senior, uh, cabinet officials and foreign policy officials who are tasked with carrying out and following his, his instincts and demands. 
Uh, and so there has been a, a constant dynamic of resistance to moves that he and has pushed for uh, from from the beginning. Uh, you know, his deep skepticism of NATO, his deep skepticism of Ukraine, his deep skepticism of U.S. military intervention in the Middle East. All of those preferences that he has have been resisted by some of the people that he appointed uh, to uh, carry out his foreign policy. Um, is it the anti-democratic? I don't know. I mean, he's the one that put those people in power. Right. Uh, he very much has a view of uh, power uh, and, and presidential power that says, I am the decider. I get to decide. Of course, as we know, given the vastness of American foreign policy bureaucracy, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of decisions that get made before they come anywhere near the president's desk. Um, so th that dynamic, I think, is, is very real. Um, one, one thing that I, I, th I think some of the people that testified uh, might quibble with is that um, this is just an instance of ideological differences because some of these people, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of, uh, of uh, Alex Vindman, uh, the White House uh, director for Ukraine, um, didn't view this as a policy difference. He viewed this as uh, inappropriate, you know, inappropriate enough to even alert NSC lawyers. And he wasn't the only one who um, – alerted NSC lawyers in this process. And so there there certainly is uh, a difference in many people's minds of ideological differences and uh, if this is extortionate behavior, if it's bribery, and if it's just self-dealing and using the apparatus of government uh, to, do, to do that. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, it's, it's also very possible, and I, I don't think this has ever really been raised in this debate, that you have this context of officials who are already um, feel like they have a president who they sh do not share very many ideological views. And when things step into the realm of uh, clear impropriety in their viewpoint, they are much more willing to blow the whistle, you know, in this case, sort of literally a whistleblower report um, and, you know, and throw up their hands and, and use the methods that we avail public servants uh, to avail themselves with um, uh, to protest the, the president in a very vociferous way that creates this, you know, extraordinarily uh, divisive process. OK, so I'm a little bit torn here because on one hand, I want us to arm the Ukrainians. I want us to push back against Russia and its role in Ukraine. On the other hand, as a small-D Democrat and also as someone who's a bit of a, a democratic absolutist in that um, I think democracy, small-D democracy takes precedence so almost every, almost everything else, really, that um, I am uncomfortable with this idea of appointees who see, who see that it's their role to constrain the president, that they're the ones who are the adults in the room and that the president has to be thwarted or restricted or undermined. That worries me at a very fundamental level. And I don't know, 
that puts me in a difficult position because um, I don't like the president's foreign policy instincts. But at some level, if he's been saying for the last year and a half that he wants to withdraw troops from Syria and his senior appointees are blocking him or slow rolling him or whatever it happens to be, and then all of us feign surprise when Trump finally decides to follow through with his intent and he actually does withdraw troops from Syria, you know, um, why should we be feigning surprise when we've known, and this is what Aaron Stein's article gets at, that if his advisors had respected, had respected his, his overall policy vision that we should withdraw our small number of troops, or at least most of them from Syria, then they could have actually done a careful sequential withdrawal and planned that ahead of time and done that instead of trying to thwart Trump. And then Trump at some point says, fuck it, I'm going to, I'm going to just do this. And then it's a mess. It's chaotic and it leads to a lot of um, problematic outcomes. So I think that Aaron Stein's article is actually quite important in this respect that, um, when you think that you can thwart Trump and go around him and slow roll him on some of these major policy decisions, it postpones the reckoning, but the reckoning will happen. And when it happens, it leads to a worse outcome. What's funny about it though, right, is in the Ukraine case, it led to a worse outcome for Trump because he was felt stymied on a lot of things and, and then ends up setting up this sort of parallel foreign policy that in fact has actually nothing to do with policy, but it's just trying to extort an outcome from the, uh, 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 from the Ukrainians on this. Look, I, um, at the same time, Ernstein's, I, I like Ernstein's piece, but there was, and again, I don't know, uh, John, maybe you know about more elements of this. Someone told me a story and I'm not going to try and recreate it here because I don't remember the details, but it was about W and uh, the Iraq war and the aftermath and um, a turf war between um, what is it? Uh, which, which, which command has control of the Middle East? Is it CENTCOM? Uh, yeah. CENTCOM and the CIA and the Turks and the Kurds. I forget if the CIA is traditionally uh, pro, uh, pro-Turkish or pro-Kurdish. I forget the details, but, but basically it was, it was a similar funny sort of story in the sense that, that Bush demanded something. Uh, and then six months later, he comes back to, he's like, what the hell happened to this? And they were like, yeah, boss, whatever. You know, it got caught up in the machinery. I mean, I think this, ha- this stuff does happen. This is, it's the nature, what you were alluding to. And this is a, a huge machine and, and, you know, these cogs operate that way. So we shouldn't overstate, again, the democratic principle in a lot of this. I mean, but if it happens three times, Demir, and Trump has said, on several different occasions, and he has made his intent clear that he wants to change our Syria policy as much as we might disagree with his approach. He's, he made that clear to his, his principals and, um, including his national security advisor, John Bolton. And then at some level, if you keep on making that clear to your senior appointees and it doesn't happen, or they're not actually in good faith pursuing that outcome, that that seems 
I mean, that's problematic if it happens several times. If it happens once, we can kind of say, hey, John Bolton was busy. He was like doing some some random shit in the white. Like, I don't even know. I just bureaucracies always push back. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's what they do. Okay, but, so, but how do you, so how do you view the John Bolton role when it comes to resisting Trump's impulses on Syria withdrawal? Well, I, I think the and this is a this is a little bit forward looking as well. Um, uh, John Bolton is is an, it's interesting that you ask about him because one of the first things that he did after leaving uh, the White House uh, was give a off the record uh, speech to um, a, a, a group of people, uh, you know, wealthy wealthy influential people in New York. And, uh, one of the things that he expressed concern about is, you know, in the event of a, a, a Trump reelection, uh, that there will be a withdrawal from U.S. withdrawal from NATO. Yeah. And, uh, what I think is embedded in that Bolton concern is a concern that Trump will finally learn the fundamental lesson of American politics that personnel is policy. Um, and in the Syria case, that's not something that he's really learned, or at least that's not something that he's fully appreciated because some of the top people that he put in charge of Syria were very committed to a full-throated uh, Assad must go style of, of policy, uh, uh, you know, essentially a, a regime change policy, uh, or at least a much more full-throated uh, American long-standing sustained military intervention in, in Syria. Uh, uh, Pompeo uh, f- favored a very strong, robust presence in Syria. Um, he appointed Jim Jeffrey, uh, also absolute no friend of the Assad regime. And at the same time, when all of this was happening, there were some voices in the Trump administration uh, below the surface who – I would say, from my perspective, uh, actually had something that would be more akin to a Trump policy that they were recommending. They saw the writing on the wall. They saw that the president wanted to get us out of, of Syria. And one of the, one of their ideas, this is one official that I've, uh, I've had a number of conversations with was that, listen, um, we've got an issue. The people that, uh, we fought with, uh, you know, the Kurds, uh, who are extremely effective fighting force against ISIS in Syria. Um, uh, what will their fate be? What is our responsibility to them in a situation where the president has made clear that U- U.S. troops want to get out? Some of those people were saying, well, the responsible thing to do would be to uh, cut some sort of an agreement with the Assad regime by which they would come over and uh, play somewhat of a protecting role, some sort of an umbrella role uh, that would prevent the Turks coming in and waging a sort of chaotic intervention that resulted in, you know, in the escape of ISIS prisoners. Uh, you know, lives were lost as a result of the chaos that ensued. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there could be somewhat of a diplomatic solution that prevents all of that. Uh, those voices never got, you know, uh, a real hearing, uh, because, uh, you know, there were, you know, Trump's top people in charge, uh, had no interest in cutting a deal with the Assad regime. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, the big question that's forward looking is, 
does does Trump, you know, in the event that he wins re-election, uh, really take away this lesson that personnel is policy in in that manifestation of President Trump? Does he start to really shake up the posture of America's national security in a way that hasn't really happened yet? Since yeah, since World War Two, I guess. So if Trump decided that he wanted to withdraw from NATO, what I mean, like, how does that even work? Like, are what would he do? It's been or, untested, as far as I know. Sorry, and it's been untested, but it's 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 as I understand it. You know, I mean, there's there's Congress is trying to kick up all sorts of uh, roadblocks to this, but it's presidential prerogative to to uh, tear up treaties. It doesn't have to go to Congress, as far as I understand. I'm so, like, saying. so just for the just for the benefit of our our dear listeners, if how does this actually work? Does Trump if Trump wakes up one morning and he's like. You know, fuck it. I just got a few years left or 10 years left in this world and I don't really care. And I just want to do crazy shit because that's who <laughs> I am and that's what I believe. And he's like, Hey, it might destroy the world, but I actually don't care. And I want us to withdraw from NATO. Can Trump just go to like Robert, o- Robert, Robert O'Brien? <laughs> Robert O'Brien. Some Irishman? Wait, isn't that the, the national, national security, security advisor? advisor? Oh, yeah. wait, Demir, come on, you're messing now. No, I don't know who the who took over Bolton's job. Wait, fine, fair okay, enough. Okay, fine. His name is Robert O'Brien. Yeah, yes. Okay, if he's like, hey, Robert O'Brien, like, how does that actually Bob. work? Can, can, Bob, can he like wake up in the morning and and summon uh, Robert O'Brien to his like bedroom and be like, fuck it, this is what I want. I'm the president. And I, I mean this seriously. I'm, I'm kind of like it's part. You know, it's we're we're enjoying ourselves and kind of you know talking about scenarios that God willing will never happen. But it's also important to know how this actually works in practice. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, you might not be surprised that I didn't come prepared with a legal analysis of how the U.S. <laughs> goes about a withdrawal from from NATO. Uh, you know, a, a Senate approved treaty. Uh, but it, you know, this, this has come up a number of times about kicking people out of, of NATO. And, uh, it's clear that there is no process of kicking people out. Um, uh, you know, a withdrawal is obviously another thing. And the U.S. is obviously the elephant in a room. It's just the, actually, that's the wrong animal. An 800 pound gorilla is that's the it, appropriate yeah. one. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, it, 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 it with uh, with Trump with a um Republican legislature behind him let's say that is the t- the scenario uh could could certainly make very aggressive steps there's also i think we should also you know be very aware of you know Trump likes to have like outline extreme positions as a negoti- negotiating position uh and and something maybe less than that ends up happening we should also be open to the idea and aware of the notion that uh that John Bolton has relaunched his super PAC and one of the things that that he is doing is raising concern about extreme and grave threats to U.S. national security. Uh, and so there's no downside to uh, elevating concerns about what could happen. You know, what concerns is Bolton world. elevating? Well, NATO. Is that and anything else? Is so his his main things are the same things that he have uh, threats that he has outlined from from his entire career. Uh, uh, he believes that uh, that Russia is an incredible threat uh, and sustained threat to the United States. 
China is a sustained threat. Uh, Islamic radicalism is a, is a no. Is a there we go. Okay, yeah, th- those are his favorite uh, boogeymen uh, in general, <laughs> and and maybe that's an unfair phrase. Those are his, his favorite threats to to outline, and those are the ones that he can continues. Uh, to to raise the alarm about and 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 that's basically his job now that he doesn't have a job in the White House. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's the question: is is uh, does Trump learn? Right? Is is uh, because I think I mean you said this actually outside the podcast. This idea of of uh, you know personnel as policy as 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 being you know one of the hard won lessons of that most people who come into the job. And are well served by staff. They have someone who's been inside and tells that to the president, takes him aside and says, listen, guy, this is everything. Like you get your people in the right places and you, you can accomplish things. Otherwise you're totally screwed. There's, a, there's also a problem here though that Trump doesn't actually care enough about being president in my view to actually care enough to think seriously about personnel. He likes winning. He likes winning. He is. I mean, but that's. Like, a, but that's. A, I think to, that's a good point, though, right? I mean, can he? Can he make the leap between? For me to win, I need to have, you know, real people. He understands loyalty is the other part. He gets that. That's something that's that's in the in the you know in the monkey brain in there somewhere, right? It's just like loyalty uh, delivers. He's he's run organizations. I mean, people say sure. the Trump organizations a always been very small and family oriented so he doesn't actually know how to run a bureaucracy and i think that's been shown in many ways that he doesn't appreciate but he he understands loyalty in that sort of mafia sense but for someone who prizes loyalty he sure hires a lot of quote unquote disloyal people yeah, he's i mean john bolton wouldn't be the kind of guy you'd hire if you really prized loyalty i mean bolton's got his own agenda and he did undermine the president so i think but but here's the thing i mean I don't think Trump is in this. I don't think Trump wants to be president to actually, I, I think, I think he likes the idea of being president. I don't think he actually enjoys the actuality of being president day in and day out. But for him to really be on top of personnel, he would have to be very engaged on an almost daily basis and really be willing to fight bureaucratic battles and expend capital. And I just, I don't, I don't see Trump as someone who is able or willing to do that. I don't think that's where he is intellectually. Sorry, that's not the right word. Not not intellectually, whatever. So that I mean that's one thing. Um but also I don't think that does Trump actually want to withdraw from NATO. I think what you said Demir is is really important here that he wants to shift the Overton window and get something that falls a little bit short of that extreme outcome. Because I don't think Trump actually feels very strongly about whether or not we ultimately are in NATO. What he does want is to say that I have a win. And if he can offer the threat of withdrawing from NATO in order to get, in order to strengthen his bargaining position, I think that that's what he would actually want at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point in the sense of, Trump has this longstanding view that U.S. allies have not been shouldering their fair share of the security burden. And he looks at the rich and wealthy countries of Europe and views uh, and looks at their relatively lower uh, defense spending 
than the United States and, and, and just smells something that reeks of unfairness to him in his view. Uh, and it's, it's very possible that he is, is using the threat of, uh, uh, you know, a, a real, um, uh, sizable shakeup of the post World War II order in, in order to convince that from happening. Uh, and, and, you know, this is such a, there's so many ironies surrounding this being his, his perspective because again, he has installed people who do not uh, uh, have these same aspirations. Uh, and he's, he has a Republican, uh, uh, Republicans in Congress who also don't share this and, and worked to actually increase um, America's, uh, spending for, you know, the European defense initiative, which increased under the Trump administration. Uh, and, and, and you know, a lot of people would say, um, if you really want to co- coerce the Europeans into spending more on defense, they're going to have to feel less secure and they're not going to feel less secure when the U.S. is actually increasing the amount it spends uh, uh, when it comes to military expenditures in Europe. Well, well, John, isn't it isn't part of the problem also that even if Trump wanted to bring on personnel who are more closely aligned with his ideological objectives, the problem in D.C. is that there aren't actually many foreign policy official uh, professionals who you can find who actually support withdrawing from NATO or who have really counter counterintuitive or counter or views that are counter to the established consensus or the contours of that consensus that if Trump wanted to get a national security advisor who's really a trumpist a full on trumpist there aren't obvious candidates. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely, and I, I think it's not unfair to say that uh, in, in, in Republican foreign policy circles, the most networked, the best, the people who are best at be, at trampolining into an administrative job, at, in, in in where we are in Republican politics right now, has always, uh, you know, has been uh, the sort of neoconservative or at least Republican hawk. Uh, brand of, of ideology and foreign policy, like that, you know, was ascendant after 9-11 and it's never gone away in terms of the strength of those networks. Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, there's obviously a sort of dormant paleo conservative tradition in the Republican party. Uh, but those people, people who subscribe to that view, who still exist, obviously, and they're, and they're not all, you know, all old people from the Reagan era. Who would be the most prominent um, person of that paleo tradition that if Trump really was like, Hey, I want to do this, he could appoint that person. Like who comes to mind? Yeah. Well, um, you know, there, there were a lot of, there was a lot of thinking as soon as he won the election. Um, who, who are going to, you know, there was maybe a naive idea that people who have communicated in obscure academic texts, things <laughs> that resemble what Trump said on the campaign trail, maybe those people would be elevated to positions of power. I, I say naive because in many ways that didn't happen, as, we, as we've discussed before. Uh, but, uh, y- you know, uh, there, I, I think in every different field, uh, when it comes to um, uh, geopolitical fields and spheres of, of foreign policy, there are, are different people who you could, you know, envision um, being elevated to higher positions of, of power with within the 
administration to, to carry out Trump's views. So, like you who? know, I, I don't, I don't know. And this, I'm not going to, I'm not endorsing anybody specifically, <laughs> but like, you know, when I thought about, uh, you know, Matt Rajansky and, and how he has oh, viewed I know him. R- Russia, he's at the Wilson center. And, um, uh, you know, uh, he certainly has a, uh, heterodoxical view uh, on Russia within the community of, of Washington foreign policy thinkers. And so there was thinking about, you know, maybe someone like him would go through. There was also other people that were already serving and maybe those people would be, you know, prop, you know, propped up in different ways. So like, you know, Brett McGurk, for instance, is, is, is an official, um, who some people associated with having uh, you know, a, a view that was a less ambitious view in, in, in Syria that was saying, you know, the anti-ISIS effort is prominent. That should be that dealt with. And, uh, a, a mission creep in Syria is something that, um, doesn't necessarily have the well, president's buy-in. been very vocal, um, you know, in light of the decision to withdraw troops in Syria and abandon the Kurds. I mean, McGurk has been, very, very critical of Donald Trump on this particular point. And he's saying that we should, you know, we should have been there for the Kurds. They helped us defeat ISIS. So there's a, there's a gap there even, right? Absolutely. But he spelled this out in a, in a piece that he wrote for the Washington Post, uh, that, that talked about where his concerns were and where they weren't. I, you know, one of his, you know, understandable concerns about what happened is, is obviously he had a lot of direct first person contact with the Kurds. And so to see, you know, what many view as a total betrayal of them was very difficult for him uh, to stomach. And I think there are a number of officials um, and, and, and I say, I'm, I would say a minority officials, but some who said that there was a way to deal with the Kurdish question and that, and that, and that would have been uh, an outcome that didn't involve, uh, sort of green lighting or yellow lighting a, a Turkish invasion into Syria. Hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you're absolutely right that he, he has been a, a, a critic. And, uh, I think that's a reflection of him viewing there, uh, being a alternative way for all of this being worked out. So. We, we've, we've been at this actually for an hour and a half, so you know. Oh, it doesn't feel like that. It never feels Demir, like it. it feels but, like it's been 20 minutes. But, so let me, let me, let me just sort of, uh, throw this out and then let's, let's, let's wrap on this. Okay. Um, it's, you know, on NATO, on Syria and Ukraine, um, this president, if he comes in again or even in the next, you know, 12 months, um, I, I, it feels like the, the main question is, uh, you know, the extent to which he actually wants something or knows what he wants. He has instincts, but it's like, is there sort of a drive to get it done, right? And this sort of comes back to the question of, you know, the, the personnel is policy thing. It's like, you know, uh, uh, if he has a desire to get things done rather than sort of instincts, reactionary instincts, like I hate NATO and it's like, ah, oh, they're ripping us off and, you know, I hate China. We got to get that. And I like Russia and I hate Ukraine. But, you know, like these are all twitches more than, than sort of like a, a worldview, it seems sometimes. Um, I guess maybe that's the question, uh, that I'm left with after all of this is, is, uh, you know, whether it's 12 months or four more years after this upcoming year, um, are we looking at a president who's improvising between sort of instincts and uh, as a result is never able to sort of square the circle about personnel 
or are we looking at you know what you were saying, John, that that Bolton is um, uh, worried about uh, that that the president's learning and you know his vision is going to become realized? I don't know. What do you guys think about this? Any 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 sort of parting thoughts on this? Well, from my perspective, there's still this sort of missing element of someone who it would be the consigliere role for Trump and connecting him to these um, relatively obscure people and in a small subset of people who have some government experience and who have maybe some more paleoconservative uh, viewpoints. There's never, you're never going to find your exact Trump replica, but someone who, uh, you know, individuals who aren't so wrapped up into the Washington foreign policy consensus of, uh, 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 you know, the sort of liberal internationalism that is shared in both parties. Um, does that person step forward? Um, uh, I think there's, you know, a lot of reasons to be skeptical. Like why, why, why hadn't that person, you know, emerged on the scene? That already? person is literally Tulsi Gabbard. <laughs> and, and then there's the other thing. Yeah. And I think you touched on this is, you know, the one lesson that Trump seems to be totally to learning, uh, more than others is, uh, his desire, uh, of, of having loyalists in, in place, uh, who, uh, um, you know, maybe if they don't have as much of a track record and a paper trail on, on foreign policy, perhaps that's better for him. Uh, perhaps it's better to have people, uh, like Mick Mulvaney who will put down that, that OMB order and, and implement, um, you know, what, what his understanding is of the president and, and not have this internal resistance, uh, that is borne out by, uh, having these sort of liberal internationalist views that we've seen just clash so aggressively with the president's outlook on foreign policy. Okay, so this is maybe like a deeper philosophical question. But take, take us out on a high note, Shadi. Because <laughs> I'm always wondering, like, why do people believe the things that they believe and how strongly do they believe those things? So when I think about Trump, so what we're kind of getting at is what does Trump want to leave the world with? How does he see his legacy to the extent that he thinks about his (laughs) legacy? And it gets at this really interesting question of what fundamentally motivates people. And we, you know, I don't have any particular insight into Trump's heart or Trump's mind. I don't know if anyone does, but presumably some people do. But you've spent, you've spent quite a bit of time talking to people around Trump in the Trump orbit. What is this all about for him? If he is elected again, is he ever sitting by himself in his bedroom, lonely watching Fox news or turning off Fox news when he's about to retire to bed, not retire permanently (laughs) that he's like, well, this actually really matters to me. Is Trump actually ever thinking to himself, this really, really matters to me and I have an ideological legacy that I want to impart or leave and I want to be defined by that? Or is that, is that just, op- are we operating at a level in just in talking to the, talking about this where it's actually so beyond the way Trump oper- like operates 
that it's actually silly to even think of it in, in those grand terms. But how do you view that? Well, I, I do think there's obviously this popular notion of Trump as someone who is uh, just purely reactive to uh, external events that happen and he's thin-skinned and, uh, you know, every, everything he he does is a, a sort of small microcosm of a schoolyard fight or a scrap. Um, but I, I, I do think that some people who are, are closer to the president and have heard his, his thoughts and words, uh, and what they, you know, relay is that this is someone who does have some concerns about posterity and legacy and how his presidency is viewed. It's one of the reasons why, um, impeachment is something that he viewed as, um, a, a, a troubling development. And, and, and he has, uh, exhibited an understanding that the, the sort of pockmark of impeachment is not something that, uh, most American presidents have to endure. And then that's a, that was a troubling development. Um, and, and beyond that, in terms of, uh, you know, it, things that he wants to get done, uh, that he would be sort of proud of, uh, uh, you know, and, and want to view as legacy issues. You know, I think we're all f- familiar with these, you know, completely reorienting the U.S. relationship with China. And but why? And, but know, I guess like I, I, I agree that seems to be something he cares about. But why? But, I mean, in, in his view, uh, this is a very much a, a, a grievance-based desire and writing what he views as the wrongs of decades of trade policy that have, you know, created a, a massive middle class in China at the expense of the middle class of the United States. And for him, that is, you know, uh, an unacceptable uh, betrayal of, of American workers. Because he cares so much about ordinary American workers? Well, I, I think a consistent motif of, of his viewpoints dating back from the 80s is, uh, you know, America has been ill served by bad negotiator presidents who haven't had the interests of, of American workers and didn't have this sort of uh, bloodlust that uh, a negotiator like he has from the business world to reset uh, the wrongs that that have been done. Uh, that's at least been his his very public, you know, campaign. Um, does he truly is he doing this out of care and concern for for the working class? Um, or is this just something that he views as a, a, a legacy goal to be seen as the, the person who was a savvy negotiator? Um, I don't think anybody can, uh, can truly say, but we know that in terms of prioritization, uh, the U.S. China getting a trade deal is, is absolutely a huge priority for him. My last question. Do you think that Trump wants to be remembered as a transformational president? Why wouldn't you want to be remembered as a transformational no, but I, president? No, but does he who consciously want, think that, though? Who does, wants to this be remembered tr- as just like another well, schmuck at the office? A lot of presidents have not been transformational well, and are, it, are actually tinkering around the margins, president. I don't how, think Obama many, was a transformational president. He certainly thought he would be, though. I mean... Which one? Which, I'm just saying, it's like, I guess maybe Gerald Ford didn't think he was going to be. He was but, just like, but, fuck it, I'm just going to be a schmuck But I mean transformationalness in the sense of really altering... 
how we think about the presidency and how we think about the goals of the presidency, tr- there is a possibility that Trump might be quite a bit more transformational or consequential than most of our recent presidents. I don't think that Bill, Bill Clinton was someone who operated within a particular set of contours, that he wasn't willing to be particularly radical. He didn't see that as being, that's not, that's not how he operated. Where I think that there's a potential, as I see it, that Trump might actually think of himself as a radical, and maybe that's a better word, a radical president who changed things that were part of a consensus or part of elite, an elite conception of, of America's role in the world. And that Trump wants to be remembered as the person who is transformational in the sense that he shattered an existing consensus where I don't think either Obama or Bill Clinton thought of themselves as shattering an existing consensus. Obama totally thought himself as like the Democratic Reagan, though. And in the sense that Reagan set up a, a consensus since since 1980. Well, God, he failed miserably. Wow, well, that's really what Obama thought about himself. Didn't he think that? Am I wrong? Am I, okay, am well, I making this up? <laughs> okay, uh, well, maybe we can kind of hold that for another time, because you know how I feel about Obama. I get yeah. really emotional in a, in a particular way. But, I mean, how... Transformational maybe isn't the right word, but John, do you see, do you think that Trump consciously thinks of himself as a radical president? Uh, well, I, I guess it's, it's hard to say. I mean, how, how much can one know about Trump's self-reflective state, soul? You know, uh, it, it would seem, you know, from, uh, you know, from, from my vantage point, just that he's not somebody who has articulated a doctrine and that's not something that we should be looking for or ex- expectant uh, uh, or we should be expecting to see at the same time. Uh, he he's obviously somebody who views himself as a transformational force uh, out of sh- the sheer force of his personality. And um, it, it very much is obviously about him and given you know his strong regard for himself and his strong regard for what he believes he can do um uh you know we we know this we all know that his he, he he's very much it's very much his desire to be seen as the greatest president of all time <laughs> i mean this, this wait, is what wait seriously of all time even more than abraham lincoln Hell yeah! These these superlatives are obviously parts of of his rhetoric. I mean, it's you've been you're familiar with his Twitter account. Wait, wait! He said that he's better than Abraham Lincoln. Shot, he's trolling now. No, I honestly don't know, guys. I someone don't. put this on on some social media recently, wasn't there? He did not ever say that he's better than Abraham Lincoln. So, some, someone in his campaign did, I think. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not prepared to play fact checker about yeah, this specific not live aspect. In any case. Uh, but uh, you know, the superlative comparisons, the like placing himself in the, the the pantheon of great American presidents. That's obviously been part of his rhetorical. Uh, uh, material, you know, since day one. But also, like Demir, you know that I sort of see Trump as a performance artist. Right. That he, he can say things, but that he uses rhetoric in an instrumental way without necessarily believing in his rhetoric in some kind of, in some deep sense. Like he doesn't actually think that he's better than George Washington. 
Does he like the idea of being the greatest president of all time or one of them? Yes, he certainly does. So I, I mean, not to get into like, I mean, these the are uses rabbit of holes. Red, yeah, right? these are rabbit holes. And well, I'm saying, I mean, come on, anyone, anyone who's going to end up as uh, president of the United States, president of France, any one of these places, uh, and we, we is, talk- is 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 a, is a, it's like a massive egomaniac. Of course, they think they're changing the world. Of course, they think they're 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 you know. Uh, God's gift to humanity. Of course they do. You don't, you don't, you don't get to be this if you don't think that about yeah. yourself. And we talked about this last time that all presidents basically have major character and personality flaws that for them to actually think that they, that they deserve to be president suggests that they are like in some sense crazy. Correct. And Macron, we talked about how Macron's kind of crazy in that regard. Um, and Obama is megaloma, megalo, whatever that word is. Yeah. Megalo, megalo, maniacal. Ma- maniacal. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, um, which is, which is a major, which is perhaps a flaw in democracy is that anyone who is actually willing to run to be and become head of state actually has to be some, like vaguely mentally ill. That's, That's a, why we need, we need, Monarchy back, where <laughs> you have mediocrities without pretensions to anything coming into power and ruling yeah. us. Definitely better. Anyway, guys. Okay, yeah. Well, I should say that this has actually been the longest episode that we've ever done. I think our readers know. And our listeners know. <laughs> our listener. And part of it actually is um, is selfish because I didn't actually have plans after this. I'm like, fuck it. Let's just keep on going because I, I don't have anything better to do. Are you guys hungry? <laughs> All right, let's go get some tacos. All right, see you guys later. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks, John, for being with us. Good to be with you guys. Damn right. <laughs>